Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Happy Halloween, everyone. Welcome to my third annual Halloween collaborative episode. Each year, I've asked fellow podcasters and listeners to submit stories on a spooky topic for each holiday. Each year, it's been something a little different. This year, I went with the topic of true scary stories, and I was pleasantly surprised at the wide variety of topics covered and I was completely blown away by how much work these contributors put into their stories and just how good they are. So tuck yourself in and pull those covers up tight because I've got a great batch of spooky stories for you tonight. Happy Halloween. While many contributors were fine with recording their own stories, there were a few that would prefer myself to do it. So I will be starting with one of these stories and it was actually submitted by a listener that prefers to remain anonymous. Here's the story. I work at a haunted attraction located in a large old industrial building in my hometown. While prepping to open, we frequently have nights where we're there late into the evening building and painting. On what was to be the last night of prep there was a group of about six people cleaning, painting, etc. They were taking a break and out of nowhere, they hear banging on the metal garage door that leads into the building and someone yelling. They went outside to see what was happening. There's a man standing on top of the casing for the garage door, yelling and screaming. One of my coworkers who had come out for a smoke break was standing on the stairs that are next to the garage door. Just for reference, this garage door is at least 12 feet tall and the casing that it rolls into when it's open adds another two to three feet. So this man was standing about 15 feet above the ground on a metal casing about two feet wide and eight feet long. My coworker who was outside when he crawled up there was yelling at him to come down and another two coworkers that were there started to also try to get him to come down. The guy starts vomiting onto the ground below and then pulls out a large piece of broken glass and a large piece of broken gravel. He starts slicing at his chest with the glass and slamming the gravel piece into the open cuts. The cops are called, and because it's a haunted house, they initially don't believe that there's an actual issue and had to be convinced to come. 
but once they get there, they realize the severity of the situation. They try to calm the guy down and get him to come back onto the stairs to come down safely. After a while, he goes to the opposite end of the door casing and starts threatening to jump off. The police try over and over to get him down, but eventually the guy decided jumping would be better than the stairs. He shoved the piece of glass into his mouth and let himself fall off the door casing flat onto the pavement below. He fell directly on the front of his body, smashing his face into the pavement. Luckily, the glass shattered and didn't cause too much damage in his mouth other than cuts. The police and EMTs grabbed him and brought him onto the concrete directly in front of the garage door and started working on him. He was alive but severely bleeding from facial injuries. They arrested him, got him into an ambulance, and off he went. There was blood and vomit everywhere. And since the guy fell directly in front of one of my coworkers' cars, they were stuck there until the crime scene team could take photos and process everything. Luckily, her husband was helping out that night, so they were both there, and she wasn't there just by herself. Once the crime scene team cleared everything, it was time for cleanup because as much as real blood and vomit would have added ambiance to the haunted house, it's of course also a biohazard. The two of my coworkers whose car was part of the crime scene started pouring water onto the concrete to try to wash as much of everything away as possible. And luckily it also rained the next day, which helped. We decided to have one last meetup two days after this all happened and the whole story was passed on to me by all six of the people who were there. They showed me where it happened and pointed out the remaining large blood stain. My first thought was, nope, that's gotta go, even though it's dried and probably not an issue, it's still gotta go. The haunt is in mostly a basement and we have a lot of mold, so we have bleach in abundance. I grabbed one of the garden sprayers we used to texture paint, threw a bottle of bleach in it, went outside and started bleaching anything I saw that looked like blood. 20 minutes and two bottles of bleach later, it was finally gone. The story doesn't end there though. One of my coworkers was able to find out what the guy's name was and unfortunately found his obituary a week or so after this happened. He had survived the initial fall and was sent to a psychiatric hospital, but was somehow released and did manage to follow through with his plan to commit suicide. We're not sure how or where, but his obituary said he had been struggling with mental health issues for a long time. I appreciate the submission, Anonymous. That was a really creepy story. I found it to really give me the creeps. I think just thinking about someone in that situation acting so unpredictable and you don't know if they're gonna attack you or what they're going to do. Thank you so much. That was very real life horror. Next up, we've got a submission from one of your favorite podcasters. And if he isn't already, well, then he certainly should be. Hello, everyone. This is Robin Warder, host of the true crime podcast, The Trail Went Cold. And for this special Halloween episode, I've got a ghost story to share. This probably won't come as a shock to anyone who's ever listened to my podcast, but I learned about this story on the TV show Unsolved Mysteries. The show featured a number of segments about ghosts, but this particular one stood out because it was more than just a mere sighting. This ghost sighting actually had a real-world impact 
and may have even saved a life. Shortly before 3 a.m. on the morning of June 11, 1994, a woman named Deborah Hoyt was in the passenger seat of a car, being driven by her husband on an isolated section of US Highway 50 in El Dorado County, California. The couple was feeling pretty tired, but Deborah soon received a jolt when she looked out the window and thought she saw a naked woman lying by the side of the road in a semi-fetal position. The Hoyts drove by the woman, but elected not to pull over, because for all they knew, this could have been some elaborate setup concocted by someone who was planning to hijack their vehicle. Instead, they drove to the nearest phone booth a couple of minutes away and phoned the El Dorado County Sheriff's Department to report what they saw. A pair of police cars performed a search of Highway 50, but did not find any trace of a naked woman, and since it was dark, the Hoyts were unable to pinpoint the exact spot where they had seen her. However, a sheriff's deputy named Rich Strasser wanted to explore this sighting further because a woman and her son had recently gone missing in the area. On June 5th, 23-year-old Christine Skubish and a 3-year-old son Nick had left their home near Sacramento in order to drive to Carson City, Nevada, but when they failed to arrive, their family reported them missing. Once daylight hit, Deputy Strasser decided to perform a new search of Highway 50. He was particularly intrigued by the fact that the sighting of the naked woman had occurred near Bullion Bend, which was considered to be one of the most dangerous stretches of the highway. Sure enough, when Strasser arrived at the location, he noticed a child's tennis shoe lying by the side of the road. He decided to pull over and saw that the shoe was next to a steep 40-foot embankment. Strasser climbed all the way down to the bottom of the ravine, where he discovered a wrecked car with its roof torn off. A woman was lying dead behind the wheel, and a nude boy was curled up in a fetal position on the passenger seat. But even though he was suffering from dehydration and hypothermia, the boy was still alive, so Strasser immediately called an ambulance and had him taken to the hospital. The victims were quickly identified as Christine and Nick Skubish. It was estimated that during the early morning hours of June 6th, Christine had fallen asleep at the wheel before her car swerved off the road into the ravine. Remarkably, Nick survived the crash and spent the next five days without food or water and had stripped off his clothing because of the extreme heat. In fact, he may have spent much of that time speaking with his mother, unaware that she was dead. But thankfully, after he was given medical attention, Nick managed to pull through though doctors said he probably would have only survived inside the car for another hour or, hour or hour and a half if Deputy Strasser had not found him. But how does the sighting of the naked woman fit into all this? It was determined that Christine was killed instantly upon impact, and she was still found wearing her seatbelt and was fully clothed, so the woman could not have been her. Not surprisingly, this led to speculation that Christine's ghost appeared by the side of the road, in an attempt to summon help for her son. Years later, after Nick got older, he would be interviewed when this story was featured on the TV show Paranormal Witness, and he described his memories of seeing a bright light surrounding the car following the crash, as well as the spectral figure of a woman near the road. Now, I don't know if, now, I don't know if Christine Skubish's spirit came back from the dead in order to rescue her son, and if you're a skeptic, 
The most logical explanation is that the Hoyts completely imagined the ghostly naked woman they saw by the side of the road, as by their own admission, they were quite tired at the time. That's certainly possible, but even so, it's quite a remarkable coincidence that they would have this hallucination at the exact location where a fatal car crash had taken place. Even the most hardened skeptic has to acknowledge that if the Hoyts had not reported their sighting, Nick Skubish would not be alive today. His mother's car had crashed so far down the embankment that it could not be seen by motorists who were driving by on the highway, so who knows how long it would have taken for someone to search that location were it not for the Hoyts' phone call to police. Regardless of whether you believe in the paranormal or not, this is still a pretty miraculous story. So if you happen to be driving down a deserted road one night, and think you see a naked woman lying by the side of the road, do not hesitate to report it. You may actually wind up saving a life. Anyway, special thanks to Ariel for inviting me to participate in this episode, and have yourself a happy Halloween. You know, leave it to Robin Warder to come up with a fantastic story from Unsolved Mysteries that I had never heard of before. And while I tend to be one of these hardened skeptics that he mentioned, stories like this really do give me pause and make me think maybe ghosts really do exist. Thank you so much, Robin. Next, I've got a story from another of your favorite true crime podcasters. Hi, I'm Cambo from True Crime Island, and Ari asked me if I had a scary true story for Halloween. Well, here it goes. Have you ever woken up, felt immobilized by a pressure on your chest? You try to scream, but you can't get any words out of your mouth? You feel a malevolent presence that's holding you down? Well, I've had this happen to me, and it's terrifying. I was at an ex-girlfriend's parents' place and we decided to stay the night as it was late. After a family went to bed, we grabbed a doona and slept on the lounge room floor near the TV. It must have been about 3am when I was woken by a force holding me down. I looked around but I couldn't see anything, but I could feel this evil above me. I tried to scream but I couldn't even let out a little whimper. I knew I was awake, I knew it wasn't sleep paralysis as I've had that before and I've been able to get out some sort of garbled scream. This was something different and it felt evil. In my mind I fought it back with all my might and then maybe after a minute or two, it's so hard to say exactly how long, the presence was gone. I could breathe again and I was still awake. I thought about it for a bit and then fell asleep. Soon, the evil was back and holding me down again. This time, I was ready and able to fight back straight away. It took only seconds this time to fight off the evil above me. The next morning, I told the ex and her family what had happened. They very matter-of-factly told me that it was the dead neighbor. I said, what the fuck? She'd lived across the road with her husband and had died several years before. My ex's mum ended up setting up the husband with a new lady after she died and then things started to happen in their house. Unplugged appliances would start in the middle of the night 
The front door would be knocked on and no one would be there. Items on the TV would fly across the room and smash into the wall. They'd become so used to it and my introduction had been the woman visiting me the night before. Oh, and the TV that I was sleeping next to? Well, it was the dead's, dead wife's TV. The husband had given it to my ex's family. Now, when this woman was sick and dying, she would sit and watch it for hours on end. Well, some people call these visits the night hag. Some say it's just sleep paralysis. I know what happened that night, and it was supernatural. You know, you gotta love a Cambo story. And if you don't listen to True Crime Island, you definitely should check it out. I mean, I could listen to him probably just read the phone book, but he's a really good storyteller, as you can tell. Thank you, Cambo. Next up, I've got a longer submission from listener and friend Matt Burgoon. Matt is a local writer and comedian, and you can actually check out his comedy album, Cat Tales, on pretty much every streaming service there is. So if you want a good palate cleanser after all of the spooky tales, that's a good option for you to check out. All right, uh, my name is Matt Bergoon. I'm here to talk about what scares me. Um, thanks for letting me do this. I have a lot to get off my chest. Um, besides things that scare me, you know, like old age, um, not saving for retirement, um, just reading the news in general, those are all pretty scary. But the thing that scares me the most is, um, I guess, going into the unknown. Like, I don't know, not the type of unknown where you're, like, at a house party and you see a half-filled drink and you don't know what's in it, but you drink it anyways because, like, walking across the room for a fresh drink would be absolute torture. But leaving your home to go into literally unmapped areas of the globe um, off the edge of the map, so to speak. And um, that's what uh, the Franklin Expedition did in 1845 when they attempted the sail through northern Canada to find uh, the rumored Northwest Passage to China. Um, they did this because Britain was trying to find the Northwest Passage in order for them to get to China and India. Uh, before they found the Northwest Passage, they had the sail from England all the way around Africa or, you know, if you're white, the urban parts of the globe, which, hmm, that's a long time to keep your windows rolled up on the ship. Uh, the leader of the Franklin Expedition was Sir John Franklin, as of course. He was an officer in the British Navy, and he, uh, he served in uh, the Napoleonic Wars, where he won awards for gallantry. Franklin had gone on previous Arctic expeditions, including one in 1819, where he was traveling overland for hundreds of miles, and when he arrived at his destination in the middle of nowhere, after having not eaten for four fucking weeks, <laughs> he found the place abandoned by the people who were supposedly there waiting for him. And before they left, they took all the food, which, ooh, that feels good. So Franklin and his expedition, they ended up having to eat their leather boots to survive giving him the nickname, the man who ate his boots. He lost 11 out of the 20 people who went with him due to starvation, disease, general wilderness, malaise. Losing over half your men to walk across Canada, that sucks. So when Franklin set sail in 1845, he made sure he was ready to go. 
he had two ships, the Erebus and the Terror, and he, uh, they equipped them with the most like technologically advanced items he could find. The hulls were coated in iron so he could plow through ice. He had the ships outfitted with propellers, which it really hadn't been done before, and also a steam engine to push them through the ice, kind of making them into 19th century icebreakers. Um, he also had um, creature comforts that weren't available to other ships in the Navy at the time, you know, like uh, costumes for putting on plays. He also had over a thousand books on board the ships, so people wouldn't get bored. Um, he also set sail with uh, three years worth of food. Now here's the thing about that food, uh, most of it was canned. Uh, that will come into play later on in a most horrific way, so spoilers. So he set sail in May 1845 from England with 110 men and 24 officers and he began his voyage that was supposed to last around a year or so. Um, they were expecting him to be gone for around two years, you know, before they before they would send anyone out after him. He was set to sail through Canada, through the Northwest Passage, if he found it, into the Pacific, hang out in China, you know, spend a year abroad, essentially, and then come on back. Um, but it turned out that that would be a one-way trip. Never be heard or seen from again. Uh, we don't know precisely what happened to the Franklin expedition uh, because they disappeared. But from hundreds of searches, uh, testimony from the Inuit, and uh, recent scientific uh, exploration, we were able to piece together a general timeline of what occurred. The last white people to see the Franklin expedition were whalers in Baffin Bay, uh, that was in Canada, kind of on the eastern part, in July 1845. Uh, Franklin and his crew, they pushed in to the Northwest Passage, going about as far as they can, but unfortunately uh, ice uh, trapped them around Beachy Island, and while they wintered in Beachy Island in 1845, uh, three crew members died of tuberculosis. Uh, in 1846, they pushed even deeper into the Northwest Passage, uh, and that, that, that winter they were trapped off of King William's Island. Um, they would remain trapped in the ice for the next two years. Now, here's the thing. When you imagine the ships trapped in ice, you probably think of two ships sitting upright on a flat surface of ice that you can see around you for miles. You're imagining probably a lot of hockey games happening, you know, a lot of looking out over just vast horizons. But that's not the case with this because this is, this is pack ice. This is essentially like glacier ice almost. And it's never sitting still. It's always shifting. It's, um, it's, it's shifting and it's moving and it's causing, um, it's throwing up huge crevasses because it's like always smashing against each other and then getting jetted upwards. It's so much ice. And it's, um, it's, it's like it's pushing against the ship and it can either push the ship upwards or it can push against the ship eventually crushing it. So sailors were going to sleep every night just listening to the ship just creaking, you know, just struggling to not fall in on itself. And it was also 
the ships like weren't level, the ice would tilt them to crazy degrees. So your home would essentially be at like a 30 degree tilt all the time. Imagine living in a house with a 30 degree tilt. That's some Dr. Seuss ass shit there. And, and it's just at night you would fall asleep in your hammock, cold, like you'd be at a tilt, the ship is buckling, it's stressful 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it was also bonkers cold. It was it was unusually cold these uh, years that Franklin and his crew were there. The ice did not break up for two entire years. That's insane. And it was so cold that the crew couldn't touch any metal parts of their ship while they were topside because it was like touching bare surfaces while topside could cause the skin to stick and tear off. And like it's, just, it's like touching your tongue to an icy pole, but it's any part of your skin. And average temperature was below zero all the time. Like it was, it was so cold. Like it was, I guess on average, according to historical records, it was usually around minus 10 to minus 20, sometimes minus 40 at night. And also they were far enough north where during the winter months, the sun would not come up. That's how far north they were. They would just spend an, almost an entire month in darkness. So that's the hellscape they were in. And also this was the 1800s. They didn't have like Gore-Tex gear. So they were forced to hang out in just wool clothing the whole time, which keeps you warm, but not great. So, so while they were there waiting for this ice to break up so they could either sail to China or sail back home, the provisions started to go bad. Now they brought along enough food for three years, but the lime juice they had to ward off scurvy, it started getting old and it started losing its potency. So scurvy was starting to break into the crew. So, and also all their fresh food that they brought with them, like cows and cattle and salted beef, things of that nature, it started running out. So what they did was they moved on to the canned rations. Now, scientists think that the tin food that the Franklin expedition brought along was tainted with lead. Uh, cans, you find them all around King William Island from this expedition, they're scattered all over the place, show massive amounts of lead on them, like giant globs on it. The lead was used to close the can to keep it sealed, but either it didn't close it well enough so the food inside was rotten, or the lead got inside the food and started just giving, and when the sailors would eat it, they would be eating lead. And while it doesn't kill you right away, it does build up in your system. Um, lead poisoning can lead to things such as memory loss, irritation, headaches, anemia, seizures, and also death. And the sailors have been living on these rations for close to two years, which is insane. I, just, I, I know I keep saying insane, but everything that happened on this voyage was insane. While they were waiting there, the crew, they built a, a stone cairn, which is a tall pile of rocks that you can put a message inside of. And then when people, other people sail past, they can see the tall pile of rocks. They'll stop, look for the message, and then return it home to England. But So they put a message there in 1847, and the message read, Having wintered in 1846 to 47 at Beachy Island, and after after having ascended Wellington Channel and returned by the west side of Cornwallis Island, Sir Franklin 
commanding the expedition, all well. That's the whole message. But in 1848, the ice still not had thawed. So in desperation, the expedition began to march south towards possible salvation. They revisited the cairn, and the second message they left was a little bit more ominous. Here's what it said. April 25th, 1848. HMS Terror and Erebus were deserted on the 22nd of April, five leagues north-northwest of this, having been beset since 12 September 1846. The officers and crew, consisting of 105 souls, under the command of Captain F.R.M. Crozier, landed here. Sir John Franklin died on the 11th of June, 1847. And the total loss by deaths in the expedition have been nine officers and 15 men. Start tomorrow, the 26th, for Backfish River. Signed, James Fitz, Fitzjames, Captain, HMS Erebus, FRM Crozier, Captain and Senior Officer. The second note stands in stark difference to the first. The first note was almost cheery, didn't, it was very professional. They didn't, but for the second note, they didn't even bother to write on a second piece of paper. They only scribbled it in the margins. And the handwriting was extremely shaky. Uh, the person, uh, the explorer that found this note, uh, he said, quote, the writing of the note and the weak, tremulous hand in which both that and his signature are written inclined me to the belief that he, uh, Captain Crozier, must have been in ill health on that early period. Also, um, end quote, uh, the, also the note contains errors, most notably the date of the expedition's winter camp at Beachy Island is incorrectly given as 46 to 47 rather than 45 to 46, and this speaks to the potential evidence to the deteriorating mental state of the expedition. Um, so, as I said, the expedition they abandoned their ships and they were walking south to the Backfish River. Now, to even get to the Backfish River, you're around 800 miles of walking. That's so far. So what they did was the expedition mounted their whale boats on sledges and filled them with supplies to pull behind them and hope they could reach the mouth of the Backfish River. It's at the very southern point of King William Island and if the river wasn't frozen over with ice, they could use those boats to sail down the river to more hospitable climates to hunt game and to reach a potential trading post that was stationed there. Now, these lifeboats, they're heavy. They're 28 feet long, often weighing hundreds of pounds empty. It took teams of dozens to push and pull them through the pack ice, and they had to pull them over large ridges and back down in the valleys, all while suffering frostbite, scurvy, malnutrition, and the effects of lead poisoning. They also filled these boats with useless items. For example, uh, one explorer found one lifeboat years later, and inside there were two skeletons looking at each other on either sides of the boat. And they were surrounded with items like silk handkerchiefs, scented soap, sponges, slippers, hair combs, and many, many books among them a copy of The Vicar of Wakefield. They also found writing desks among the lifeboats, chairs, fine china, items that you absolutely do not need in a survival situation. 
though some speculate they hope to trade with the natives for food. So they were walking south 800 miles with boats just overflowing with useless gear. At night, they would set up their canvas tents to sleep in temperatures that would often get to minus 40 degrees while wearing often wet woolen clothing because they had been walking in the snow and ice all day. Their shoes were thin and they had useless socks and sealskin uh, coats, which they called slops. At the end of a long day of sledging, people would be suffering from snow blindness, which often leads to a temporary loss of vision and extremely painful headaches. Uh, game was scarce in this region. King William Island and the surrounding areas are essentially a barren moonscape. There is nothing there but rocks on this island. I've seen it. You can go to Google Maps and look at it. It is nothing but rocks for hundreds of miles. But there is game to be had. It's rare, but it's there. And if you're a native Inuit you, and you've lived in this area for thousands of years, you know how to hunt it. But unfortunately, the sailors, they're all from England, they didn't know where to find it or how to get it. The sailors were forced to stick to those rations that were slowly poisoning them. They were burning, and plus they were burning so many calories pulling the sledges, and more and more became uh, sick and died. The workload, that that the workload pulling these sledges fell to fewer and fewer people. They turned into a real domino effect. And when a person becomes desperate enough, they burn thousands of calories pulling this sledge, they will turn to anything for sustenance, including their fellow sailors. So the main reason we know of the very last days of the Franklin expedition is because of the Inuit oral tradition, which allows them to record events with an accuracy that is astounding, to be frank. Um, it's an accuracy that sometimes our writing tradition does not have. So Inuit, they were often interviewed by uh, explorers and rescuers that were searching for the expedition over a period of dozens of years. All throughout the rest of the 1800s, there would be ex explorers through that area looking for traces of what happened or possibly to see if anyone was still alive from the expedition because Britain refused to believe that they lost all of their men on this expedition. So Inuit would report um, pale, uh, filthy, ragged men dragging their boats across King William Island. Another group of Inuit uh, reported waking up one morning to find a small group of sailors standing outside of the igloo, and they were disoriented looking. They were unrecognizable. They were so dirty, one Inuit said. The Inuit invited them into their igloo, where they tried to feed the survivors. They tried to give them some seal meat they had, but the survivors... They, they tasted it and they spit it out. They couldn't handle it, I guess. It was too rich for their system. They'd been living on canned food for nearly three years. And they just sat there disoriented and just clutched their belongings that they had brought with them. The Inuit, understandably, they were, uh, they were frightened of these strangers. They were just, they looked desperate. They didn't know, they were goggle-eyed. They didn't know what they were gonna do. So while the sailors were asleep, the Inuit, they fled. They left, they left the strangers some food and supplies inside their igloo they had built just to give them some stuff hopefully they keep moving um the inuit they eventually came back to the igloo and when they peered inside they found everyone was inside dead the seal meat strangely untouched 
but it was a charnel house still because they had eaten each other. One of the spookiest testimonies I came across was from a group of Inuit who came upon the ships after they had been abandoned. One Inuit ventured inside, and, and inside the ship was completely dark. He ended up stumbling upon something, and when he peered down to look at it, it was a large corpse. But the corpse was smiling back up at him, um, like a rictus smile. Suddenly, somebody grabbed the Inuit, and he was dragged into a dimly lit room. He said the room was occupied by skinny men with long fingernails and hair, with faces that were black. The men were clawing at him until another man entered the room and told them to stop. The man, apparently in charge, took the Inuit outside of the ship and told him to never return. Which, yikes. <laughs> just, there's just, just imagine if you're an Inuit, you've barely seen anyone outside of your, your little circle, your tribe, and you come across this abandoned wooden ship, and you go inside, and there's just monsters inside of it that are clawing at you. Just in incredible. John Ray, a British explorer, led one of the early efforts to find the fate of the Franklin expedition. He spoke to Inuit in the region who told them of the skinny, filthy white people. They had been seen dragging boats laden with belongings. Ray went to the places the Inuit directed him and found some of the expedition's last camps. Uh, Ray, he quote, some of the bodies have been buried, probably those of the first victims of the famine. Uh, some were in a tent or tents, others under the boat, which had been turned into a form of a shelter, and several lay scattered about in different directions. Of those found on the island, one was supposed to have been an officer, as he had a telescope strapped under his shoulders, and his double-barreled gun lay underneath him. From the mutilated state of many of the corpses and the contents of the kettles, it is evident that our wretched countrymen have been driven to the last resource, cannibalism, as a means of prolonging existence." End quote. Ray's reports were disbelieved in England. He would be shunned from society for several years. Uh, the guy that wrote Sherlock Holmes he blamed this on the Inuit. He said the Inuit had killed these sailors and eaten them. But when the deluge of reports from other explorers started trick trickling back, they could not be ignored. Lieutenant Frederick Schwatka, who conducted a search for the missing crew on King William Island in 1879, he interviewed an Inu Inuit named Ogzipwik. I'm not even going to pretend I know how to say that name. It's a very long name. I'm sorry. Um, this Inuit said he saw bones from legs and arms that appeared to have been sawed off. The appearance of the bones led the Inuits to the opinion that the white men had been eating each other. His reason for thinking that they had been eating each other was because the bones were cut with a knife or saw. End quote. Another Inuit testimony by the explorer Charles Hall said they had found skeleton bones be seen there now when the snow and ice are gone. She thinks not for it so muddy there be and the mud soft that they have all sunk down into it. She continued that one man's body, when found by the Inuits, flesh all on and not mutilated, except the hand sawed off at the wrist. The rest, a great many, had their flesh cut off as if someone or others had cut it off to eat." End quote. Charles Hall also went on to find a gruesome discovery. 
in what would be known as the boat place. He described what he found, quote, One whole skeleton with clothes on, the flesh all on, but dried. Many skeleton bones, three skulls, alongside that of a boat, a big pile of skeleton bones that had been broken up for the marrow inside them. They were near a fireplace, a great many skulls among these. It is certain that some of the men lived on human flesh, for alongside the boat there were large boots with cooked human flesh inside them. The starving seamen who remained at or about the boats no longer restrained themselves from satisfying their primal hunger. End quote. Nobody really knows um, how far they made it. They found skeletons as far south as the very tip, the very southern tip of King William Island, but it, it's certain that they all died. Not a single one made it back. And it's really sad. <laughs> I don't know. I always get I was I always get sad just because they walked across a whole island and they made it to essentially the spot that would the river that would carry them back but they were all too tired and mal, malnourished to even do that and I always try to imagine like what it was like like I went hiking this summer I went 12 miles at the end of that 12 miles I was gassed uh, admittedly, I'm crazy out of shape, but so is your average 1850 person. So, and I also had hiking boots on, like nice hiking pants, nice hiking boxer briefs that cover so you find, I mean, insides don't chafe as you get, you know, you know, cupping the balls, so to speak. And I can't even imagine what it's like to walk across an entire island with lead poisoning, hungry, um, thirsty. <laughs> just everything that could possibly be wrong with you be wrong with you and yeah and they all died and it's and it's scary that that happened because there's just nothing you can do about it you can only keep walking until you die so yeah that's what scares me that's what scares me the most and also also spiders but i mean that's just i couldn't get a whole thing out of spiders so all right um, peace. Much thanks to Matt for the awesome submission. I really enjoy stories like that, and I actually read a lot of nonfiction books about those types of things, just for fun. And for those of you that like horror shows and books, Dan Simmons actually wrote a book called The Terror, which is a fictionalized account of this Franklin expedition, but it involves, you know, monsters and shit. So you should check that out. And there's also a TV show based on it. And I hear it's really good, but I have not seen it. But I'll recommend it anyways. So thank you, Matt. That was a really cool story. Next up, I've got another long submission from a listener and friend, Rick. Hello, everyone, at Murder Under the Midnight Sun. When thinking of terrifying stories, my mind immediately goes to creepy, strange, or mysterious. Now, I'm confident... I've heard plenty of creepy, strange, and mysterious stories. I grew up during the original run of Unsolved Mysteries. And a quick aside, Robert Stack has a cameo in the 1998 absurd sports comedy Basketball, starring South Park's Trey Parker and Matt Stone, which would make the movie worth watching even if I didn't already love it. 
but the, the real stories don't affect me in as much as they don't stay with me. Maybe I'm too far removed geographically or in terms of time, or it's a crime so evil that I don't like thinking about it. I'm much more likely to remember and chuckle at the panic-inducing urban legends I heard as a kid, and those stories still make the rounds throughout the year, and especially at Halloween. Urban legends like, This weekend is a gang initiation. Gang members will drive around at night with their lights off. And if anyone flashes their high beams in order to notify the gang members that their car lights aren't turned on, they'll turn around and chase you down and kill you. Or the other urban legend about mischief makers hiding dirty needles in coin return slots at payphones. I guess that one doesn't really make the rounds anymore. Or the recent urban legend that carjackers will place a $100 bill under the windshield of a parked car that they want to steal. And then when the owner returns and enters his or her vehicle, the owner of the car will see the $100 bill, exit the vehicle, and at that point the carjacker will jump into the car and drive away. Uh, that whole premise is so convoluted and antithetical to 99% of auto theft, but it's just plausible enough to freak out some people who are going to walk out of the mall and notice a flyer tucked under their windshield wiper and anticipate that they're gonna get carjacked. But since it's Halloween, one urban legend that's terrifying to some, despite decades of it never happening, the razor blade hidden in an apple and given out to trick-or-treaters. Even as a kid, I laughed at the idea of some child-hating adult attempting to pull off such a fantastic act of terrorism. As if every trick-or-treater who received an apple wouldn't remember the exact house of the asshole who handed them an apple. And I suppose the modern-day version of this hoax is the idea that ne'er-do-wells will try to give trick-or-treaters drugs on Halloween. That's so ridiculous, I don't even want to delve into it. My point is that, for whatever reason, I tend to forget the actual scary stories. So, I asked myself, What's a terrifying thing that could reasonably happen to me and crosses my mind on at least a semi-regular occasion? And without hesitation, I said, getting trapped in an elevator. Now, I don't consider myself to have a phobia of this. The fear does not affect my daily life. If I need to go higher than the second floor, I'll take the elevator, and I imagine that if I were trapped in an elevator, I wouldn't die. That it would just be an uncomfortable inconvenience. Nonetheless, I do occasionally consider how I might begin to panic if I were to get stuck in an elevator and were unable to contact someone, or if I didn't feel the elevator start moving again in one or two minutes. What's more, I do encounter this fear of an unlikely event, and I make a decision based on it at least once a week. 
I sometimes enter my work building through a door near an out-of-the-way elevator. I'll see the elevator and think, "Eh, well, maybe I'll be lazy today and I'll ride the elevator up one floor. Now, it does help that this elevator is often uncomfortably warm and occasionally and uh, pretty much all the time, it stinks. It stinks like a, a public restroom where I go into it and I think, like, the funk of all the people who've ever been in this fucking room, it, it's like it's seeped into the walls and it's just now an essence that lives in this room. And there's no bleaching, there's no Clorox, there's no nothing that can ever get this clean. It just stinks. It is a living entity and now this stinks. But considering that this elevator is on the edge of an oddly shaped building, I will immediately imagine myself having a Charlie Brown bad luck day and getting stuck in this elevator, and then on that day, no one decides to use the elevator. Furthermore, maybe the elevator has already been deemed to be out of order, but the doors, for whatever reason, opened one last time for me, and now I'm this elevator's unsuspecting victim. And I'll tell you, I don't know how audible a person screaming for help is when they're trapped inside of a closed elevator. And if it's a true Charlie Brown day, my phone signal won't reach outside of that elevator. So when I try to call for help with my phone, no one's going to be there to hear me. And I do know that there's a call for help button in elevators, but I kind of worry that it will be about as useful as the closed doors button. And even though it's 2019 and we have smartphones and satellites and GPS and Wi-Fi, frankly, I don't assume that the help button inside the millions of elevators worldwide are hooked up properly. And if those doors won't open, I am totally dependent upon reaching someone on the outside because there's no escape hatch inside of the elevator. Now, we have escape hatches even in the trunks of cars. Or for any British listeners, the boots. Even a supercar Lamborghini with a front trunk large enough for only a briefcase and maybe, maybe a duffel bag will have an escape hatch. Yet an elevator, nothing. We have emergency exits on doors and buildings, emergency windows and doors on school buses and airplanes. But if you're trapped in an elevator, you just have to hope that it's not a holiday weekend and that everybody's already left. And you have to hope that your phone's not dead and you have to hope that the call button works. And while it's unlikely, it does happen. I think back to an episode of Tosh.0 that featured a gentleman named Nick White, who, during an evening office party in a skyscraper, left the building to smoke a cigarette. After he finished smoking, he boarded the express elevator to head back up to the party. The express elevator normally traveled directly from the 1st to the 39th floor, or vice versa. Which meant, when his elevator got stuck, even though he managed to pry open the doors, he was met with a concrete wall, and he remained in the elevator 41 hours before being rescued. This leads me to a story much more horrifying than Nick White's, 
who was, by the way, a relatively healthy person who had to cope only with two nights of discomfort, emotional anguish, and having no food or drink, and having only three cigarettes, and having to pee down the elevator shaft when he pried open the doors. Um... In 2016, a woman from Xi'an, China, found herself trapped in an elevator of her apartment complex. Um, Identified only by her surname, Wu, 43-year-old Miss Wu, uh, who apparently kept to herself and wasn't familiar with her neighbors, um, she got on the elevator one day and the doors didn't open again. Being that it was an elevator in her apartment complex, I imagine that she, as would I, felt comfortable using the elevator and imagine that if it were to malfunction, other people would soon learn of the malfunction and notify service people or whomever and that those people would quickly tend to the situation. Miss Wu, who lived on the 15th floor, um, ended up trapped between floors 10 and 11. The apartment complex where she lived employed the services of a third-party maintenance company, which, as I understand it, is not uncommon in China or the U.S. Unfortunately for Miss Wu, two service people cut the power to the elevator upon learning that it had malfunctioned. And instead of opening the doors to the elevator to ensure that no one was trapped inside, they merely performed a verbal check and then left the elevator inoperable for over a month. The service people essentially just yelled, Hey, is anybody down there? Heard no response and concluded that they weren't abandoning a helpless woman in an elevator tomb. And that was two service people. Two people who decided it was not worth opening the elevator to make sure that a passenger wasn't sleeping, deaf, mute, or suffering from a medical condition. Ms. Wu died because two incompetent, lazy employees didn't bother to ensure that the elevator was empty. A person's ability to survive without water ranges from 3 to 10 days. So there was plenty of time that Miss Wu could have been rescued. I imagine that it must have been absolutely terrifying around hour 1 or 2, realizing that people didn't know that she was trapped. And after the second day, the helplessness must have been overwhelming. And it's not like she was out to sea or stranded in the desert. She was 100 feet from people who could, who could help her. But they didn't know. And this was in 2016, not 1916. That human error cost Miss Wu her life. And that is a tragedy. And that there's not a safeguard that allows a person to escape an elevator seems a little bit odd especially in the U.S. or other Western societies where we're very open to lawsuits and companies are very concerned with liability lawsuits. And we're the U.S. and the U.S. is the land of car trunk releases, fire lanes, etc. Safeguards everywhere, warning stickers. But you get stuck in an elevator. All right, we hope someone finds you. I have read that maintenance companies have been heavily criticized in China, but that level of human error, frankly, can occur anywhere. 
The other factor that led to the elevator that entombed Miss Wu remaining unserviced for 30 days is that there was another elevator that residents used, which means that there was less pressure on management of the apartment complex and the maintenance company to repair the elevator because the residents could still get up and down the floors. So, of course, now I'm extra concerned if there is more than one elevator in a building, and I assure you if I ever find myself tempted to ride an elevator alone at the end of business hours, especially on a Friday or in a building, I will definitely think twice and consider taking the opportunity to get some free exercise on the staircase. Thank you so much for your submission, Rick. That is a truly horrifying story. I'm not claustrophobic really at all, but I think anyone in that situation would freak the fuck out, and that's a nightmare. Next, I'll be reading a submission by Nikki, hostess of Strictly Homicide Podcast. Nikki writes, One of the most haunted places here in Arkansas is the 1886 Crescent Hotel and Spa. The hotel has changed ownership a number of times, which means it wasn't always a hotel. You can stay in some of the haunted rooms and take ghost tours there. And on the fourth floor, there's a mini museum of the hotel's history. People traveled to Eureka Springs from all over because the springs was said to be some kind of magic healing water. The Crescent was built to attract higher class people. Many big names from 1886 attended the grand opening. In 1886, the hotel cost $294,000 to build. When they built it, stonecutters came over from Ireland and one of them fell to his death where room 218 is. Many guests have reported hauntings from the room, including shutting doors, turning lights off, and the feeling of a presence. In 1902, during the slow winter months, Crescent Hotel became Crescent College for Women until 1937, when Norman Baker purchased the building to turn into a cancer institute. He claimed to have the cure and scammed folks for millions of dollars. He added an escape route and hidden staircase to the hotel. He was jailed in 1940. It said many people suffered and died while being treated for cancer. Some people have reported seeing a pool of blood that disappears near the morgue. Another ghost that haunts the hotel is Dr. John Fremont Ellis, who was seen by workers and guests in a top hat and fine clothing. He can usually be found on the second floor smoking his pipe, which often people smell smoke near the elevator. In 1997, the owners hired certified mediums to read the hotel and found that it showed signs of being a portal to the other side. I've been to the hotel a few times and never witnessed anything, but it has been on some ghost hunting shows. Thank you so much for your submission, Nikki. I'm always interested in hearing about local legends and things like that. And I've always wanted to just stay the night in a haunted hotel or haunted house and just throw caution to the wind. And maybe just see if something happens that makes me reassess my skepticism. Next up, I've got a submission from the host of the Forgotten News podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim. Hi, my name is Kate Karen. And we host the Forgotten News podcast. Whoop, whoop. Thank you, Ariel, for inviting us to join you on your podcast, Murder Under the Midnight Sun. 
you asked us if we had any spooky stories to share with your listeners. And I am so sad to tell you that as far as myself, I don't have any. But Jim has one. So, Jim, go ahead and tell your story. Okay, I am going to tell you the story of my one and only paranormal experience. I was a kid, maybe nine or ten, and for some reason, I had a Ouija board. I don't remember where it came from. It might have been a birthday gift or a Christmas gift from a relative or a family member. I really am not sure. It's just too long ago. And for this story, it really doesn't matter where it came from. I'll just move on. So I had this Ouija board. And I hadn't used it yet because you needed two people. I didn't want to do it with my parents, and my sister was too little. And one day in the summer, my mom decided to visit my aunt. My sister and I had to go with her because my dad was at work, and we were too young to be left alone at home. So this aunt of ours had two daughters. They were a little older than me, but not much. They lived in the same city as us, but nowhere near us. And they lived in a house that had absolutely nothing that would interest a 9- or 10-year-old boy, other than a TV set. But I rarely had any input as to what was watched. So whenever I had to go to my aunt's house, I would bring some things to occupy my time comic books, toys, games, things like that. But now I had a Ouija board. So I brought that and some comic books. Anyway, we got to my aunt's house, and first my aunt gave us some lunch, and everyone talked about this and that. Then after lunch was over, my mom and my aunt told us, to go play or find something to do by ourselves. And by us, they met me, my sister, and the two girl cousins. So I went out to the car and brought in my Ouija board. Then I showed it to my cousins and asked if they wanted to try it. One cousin was totally disinterested, and she wandered off to watch TV with my sister. The other cousin was very curious. So, we went to her room to give it a try. I will call this cousin Amelia, which is not her real name, of course. Now, at this point in my life, I knew extremely little about Ouija boards. I definitely knew nothing in regard to all the precautions that you often hear about now as to how to be careful when using a Ouija board so as to not allow anything evil or nasty to enter the place where you are using it. I only knew examples from 
things I'd seen on TV shows or movies or read about in books. And if they had any warnings about bad things that could happen from a Ouija, well, I didn't remember them. I know we didn't bother reading the instructions that came with the board. We just spread out the Ouija on her desk, then we dimmed the lights, put our hands on the planchettes, and asked if anyone was there. We got a response. The planchette rushed to the word yes almost immediately. I could tell from the look in Amelia's eyes that she hadn't done it. She was legitimately shocked. Or maybe she thought that I had done it, which I hadn't. The truth is, neither one of us could have done it. It happened just too quickly. There is no way that we could have thought that fast. I caught my breath and asked something like, Is someone here? Who am I talking to? Who are you? I obviously don't remember the exact words to my question. It's way too many years. But I will never forget the answer, which came right away, spelled out on the board. Damned soul. Damned soul. Oh, my God. And... I am 100% certain that neither one of us spelled out those words. That is not a phrase that any kid anywhere would think of. I mean, that is just not the way that kids talk, either back then or now. So, anyway, my cousin totally freaked out. She said something like, this is too scary. I don't want to play with this anymore. I don't remember if I said anything, but I do remember feeling very, I don't know if I'd call it scared, but definitely nervous. (laughs) The only thing that I recall saying to Amelia as we left her room was something like that was weird. She didn't exactly answer me. She just told me to take the board and put it back in my mom's car, which I immediately did. I think I spent the rest of my time at the house just reading my comic books. I remember later that summer trying to do the Ouija board with a friend of mine. Nothing happened, maybe because he wasn't very interested. I don't think he took it seriously. Maybe that was the reason. I don't know. But that was the last time that I used it or tried to use it. I don't recall what happened to the board after that. I honestly have no recollection. I know I didn't have it when I was a teenager, so I think I probably just threw it out at some point. And that is the end of my story.
Well, Ariel, and all listeners to this podcast, we hope you enjoyed Jim's story. But before we go, we would like to assure you that there are no ghosts, no evil spirits, no black magic, no supernatural, no criminals roam the roads. There's nothing to be afraid of, really. However, just the same, lock your windows and doors, pull down your shades, cover up. You never can tell what might happen. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Happy Halloween. thank you guys so much for that submission i think many of us probably have a childhood story related to playing with a ouija board i know i definitely summoned jim morrison once but that's the only time i can think of anything really cool happening but it was definitely fun to play with as a kid Next, I will be reading a submission of Real Life Terror from Rachel, the host of Yours and Murder. I think the scariest thing I can think of is a fire and the feeling of being unable to escape it. Theater fires in particular strike me because one, people come to the theater to have fun and instead end up fighting for their lives. Two, theaters can contain a large number of people and the materials are often quite flammable. Three, I've had a 13 plus year career in theaters as an actress crew member or house staff member, as well as an audience member. I can see myself in all of the stories of these fires. Fire has been a real concern for theaters since the beginning of the art form. In 1613, Shakespeare's famous Globe Theater burned to the ground after being ignited by a spark from a cannon during a performance of Henry VIII. No spectators died as the fire was very slow moving, consuming the theater in about two hours. There is one report of a possible injury, a man who had his pants catch fire, but it was put out by a friend with his beer. So that was handy. Also, he may have just been lying a lot. Being lit by candles around flammable scenery led to several problems with theaters. 200 people died with the Theater Royale in Britain burned in 1889 after scenery caught fire. A lack of a fire safety curtain and poorly designed exits had contributed to the death toll. This theater actually had been built to replace an earlier theater that had burnt. In America, the Brooklyn Theater burned and killed 300 people, 100 unidentified after a fire broke out backstage in 1876. Originally, the audience was told not to panic because the flames were, quote, part of the show, but eventually panic set in, especially in the balcony, which was only served by one staircase, and this delay made it too late for those people. The worst theater fire, in fact, the worst single building fire in U.S. history, happened in my home state of Illinois. The location was the Iroquois, the brand new theater in the heart of Chicago. The year was 1903. 
Chicago had recently grown to a city of 1.7 million residents and was the fastest growing city in the nation, if not the world. The previous decade or so had truly elevated Chicago's status, literally. The L train started running above the city in the 1890s, becoming Chicago's iconic public transportation system. The 1890s also brought the World's Fair to Chicago, and H.H. Holmes, my interjection, cementing it as a major American city in the eyes of the nation. Chicago was recovered from the Great Fire and looking forward to its future. 1903 was a year of innovation across the country. The first box of Crayola crayons would be sold, the first teddy bear was introduced, and the first powered flight was taken at Kitty Hawk. In Chicago, the White Stockings became the Chicago Cubs, which is a much better name. And in 1903, a new theater would rise and fall. The Iroquois was built on Randolph Street in Chicago, a location specifically chosen to be in a shopping district. It was thought the location would attract women who were visiting the city to the theater, as the area was seen as safer and patrolled often by police. The theater would finally open at the end of November 1903. Labor problems had caused several delays and there were rumors that inspectors were bought off with free tickets. In spite of this, the theater was advertised as, quote, totally fireproof. That's an endorsement. It was modern with an asbestos fire curtains, electric stage lights, and plenty of fly space above the stage. Critics called it the newest and most beautiful theater in town. However, this was a thin facade and would soon crack or burn away. Just a month later on Saturday, December 30th, it dawned quite cold in Chicago. The popular review, Mr. Bluebeard, was playing at the Iroquois Theater. Many parents thought that taking the kids to a show would help stave off the boredom from the weather and winter break. The advertising of Mr. Bluebeard even told the city that every child should see it. The Iroquois had a main seating section on the main floor, then the dress circle above that and the balcony. The theater also had a section for standing room tickets. There was only one staircase and main foyer to provide an entrance to the theater, reaching to all levels. This was to allow all patrons to mix briefly, despite the differences in their ticket prices. Once the lower-paying patrons reached the balcony, however, gates prevented them from leaving, supposedly to keep them from sneaking into higher-priced seats. However, that day, this would have been completely impossible because that day the Iroquois had every one of its around 1,600 seats sold, plus more for standing room. The theater was past its capacity, with some of the patrons standing in the aisles. Usually they sold 119 standing room tickets, but that day they had sold or had passes for many more, around 200. Not to mention the 300 performers and technicians who put on the show, as well as the 30 theater staff working that day. Most of the attendants were young, with star Eddie Foy commenting that he'd never seen a house so full of women and children. He'd even brought his own young son that day, allowing him to stay backstage and watch the show. The first act of the show had passed without incident. The In the Pale Moonlight number was playing during the second act with eight men and eight women on stage under blue light. It was then that disaster began. A spotlight high above the stage sparked, likely due to a short, and ignited a muslin curtain. 
A stagehand noticed and called for the firefighting equipment, which made the Iroquois be dubbed fireproof. However, the fire extinguishers were simply full of a powder called kill fire. It was meant to be thrown with force at a fire to smother the flames. However, since the fire was above the men in the curtains, the powder did nothing but fall to the stage. A few men tried to grab heavy canvas and beat the flames, but it was no use. The fly space above the stage was on fire. Crew and aerial performers watched in horror as the flames started to consume other backdrops. Nellie Reed was already in her harness for her number, and in the panic, no one stopped to help her down. During this time, the play continued. As the fire grew, the women in the number on stage whispered to their dance partners that they were feeling a bit faint. They could see the fire above. But the men reassured them. They had a fire in the show before, and it was put out quickly, but not this time. Slowly, burning bits of paper and fabric fluttered down and started to show to everyone that there was a serious problem. Hearing the commotion, Eddie Foy came out of his dressing room to investigate. He sent his son outside with a stagehand and went on stage to address the audience. He asked them to remain calm and to leave without panicking. He asked the conductor to have the orchestra play to help prevent chaos. They did, even though they could see the fire. The little bit of music was not enough to stop people from trying to rush out. But a few stayed in their seats, reassured by Foy's words. Foy began, then began to yell for the asbestos fire curtain to be lowered. However, the curtain's ropes hadn't been tested, and it took stagehands a moment to figure out how to use it. When they did, it only went down part way. There was an improperly closed light fixture in the way that struck the curtain about 20 feet above the stage. There was no time to fix it. The stagehands and performers were fleeing from above. Nellie Reed would be found later, having gotten free and possibly fallen from the flies. Another performer carried her out. She was badly burned and would die shortly after, the only confirmed fatality among the cast. Some reports say there was a second performer who died, but only Nellie was confirmed. Meanwhile, in the audience, panic was starting to spread. Patrons would rush to the aisles and try to get back out to the foyer, but the standing room crowd made this difficult. One of the fireproofing features that was advertised was that the Iroquois could be cleared in five minutes due to 30 fire exits. However, most of these exits were hidden behind heavy velvet drapes, causing confusion and pileups. There was also no exit signs. They hadn't been installed yet. Some doors were locked to prevent unpaid patrons from sneaking in. Other doors had a locking mechanism from Europe, which was unfamiliar to the audience, which cost time. One man said he only knew how to open this door because the latch was the same as his icebox at home. Upstairs in the balcony, people were finding locked accordion gates that prevented them from moving to better seats and now would prevent them from getting out of the inferno. A major problem, even if an exit was unlocked and reachable, the theater exits almost all open inward. This meant if there was any delay in opening the doors, the crush of people made it impossible. A few people in the upper levels got the exit doors open and headed out, expecting to follow new fire escapes to the alley below. However, the staircases on the escapes had not been installed yet. There were only platforms, many stories above the ground. On stage, Eddie Foy 
had still been trying to maintain calm, but later in his memoir, he described the crowd as frightened animals. Then, as burning bits of sets rained down around him, he had to flee out the backstage door. One stagehand ran out the back door down the street to another. Stagehand opened the big backstage doors to allow more people to escape. This, however, also caused air to rush into backstage, feeding the fire. Without the asbestos curtain being fully down, this led to a billowing ball of heat and flames that went over the gallery into the balcony. Even if the curtain was down, it's unknown how much it would have helped. The asbestos was mixed with wood pulp, which was flammable. Within minutes of the stagehand summoning them, the fire department arrived. They were unnerved by how quiet the foyer on Randolph Street was. They expected to see people fleeing, but there was no one left to flee. Out back, people on the fire escape platforms had a choice that wasn't really a choice at all, to jump to their death or to burn. A few workmen at a building across the street tried to put a ladder across the way, but it slipped on the icy ledge. There was a man making his way across the ladder at the time and he fell to his death. Next, the workmen put boards across and braced them with their knees. The first across was a brave 15-year-old girl who got herself and her younger sister to safety. 36 people crawled to safety this way before the fire made it impossible. However, over a hundred people would jump to their death in that alley. At the same time, the scenery crashed to the stage and took out the electrical block box, plunging the theater into darkness. When the fire was under control, rescue crews would enter with lanterns donated by a local hardware store, and they saw devastation. The lantern didn't provide enough light, so the Edison company rushed special spotlights for rescuers to use. The lights were set up, and the terrible scene was illuminated. To get into the auditorium, bodies had to be moved away from the doors. Rescuers found bodies piled 10 deep at the exits, as people had fallen and been unable to get themselves free of the crowd. Many of the casualties were not actually from the fire itself, but from being trampled to death. Other people were found charred and had died from burns, their bodies unrecognizable. Some people still sat in their seats, dying where they sat from the smoke. Rescuers called out, trying to find if anyone was still alive in the mass of bodies. Some were found and added to those who escaped with their injuries. Other bodies were found broken over seats, including a woman with her spine snapped over a back seat. It is thought they tried to jump from the balconies to have a better chance of escape on the main floor. Several local restaurants and parts of department stores were converted to hospitals to field treat the injured. When a patient died, they'd be set under a table and the staff could move on to the next victim. Back in the main alley, a few people had survived the jump, cushioned by the bodies of those who fell before. Soon, the street and alley were lined with the bodies of the lost. Every type of wagon would be used to take the bodies to the funeral homes and morgues for identification as rescue workers brought body after body outside. One firefighter walked out carrying a body, ignoring orders to pass it off to someone else. He asked his chief for permission to take this body out, saying, I've got a little one just like her at home. The chief gave permission, and the firefighter took the little girl to the wagons, tears streaming down his face. 
Altogether, 570 would be lost the day of the Iroquois Theater fire, with around 32 more dying over the next few weeks. The accepted death toll is 602, but some think it could be more if victims died at home of injuries or parents took their children's bodies home to have services without adding them into the count. There's even a story of a man who tried to board a trolley with his daughter's body when he found her outside the theater. When the driver objected, the man pulled a gun and told the driver he would be taking his child home to her mother. The driver allowed him on. 150 of those who died in the fire were children. Most of the rest were women. The dead represented the wives and children of some of the highest in Chicago society. Three staff members also died, two ushers and a female attendant. Everything flammable in the theater had basically burnt up. Shortly after the fire, blame began to fly. Many were arrested and several charged with various charges of negligent homicide. But altogether, no one was ever held responsible for the disaster. However, this was one tragedy that helped lead to the invention of the panic bar, which opens emergency doors quickly, as well as to the requirements for exit signs. It was found that the theater, despite being touted as fireproof, lacked much of the safety equipment, including sprinklers and alarms. Construction crews, as rescue operations started, snuck to the roof to try to conceal one violation. They opened the flues, which had been nailed shut. If the vents were open during the fire, they would have vented the backdraft and stopped it from consuming the balcony. The Iroquois Theater was taken down and other theaters have been in its place. The Ford Center for Performing Arts had the Oriental Theater there, which was recently renamed the Nether Netherlands Theater. This theater hosts concerts and touring Broadway shows. The Chicago production of Wicked ran there for four years. But just because the theater has been torn down and rebuilt does not mean that all traces of the disaster are gone. Some who have worked or been in the theater report seeing a woman in a tutu who suddenly vanishes. This is rumored to be Nellie Reed, the aerial dancer who died in the fire. However, most of the hauntings are rumored to be out back. Today, the alley is still known as Couch Place, but it is better known as Death Alley. People report feelings of dread and cold spots back there. Occasionally, screams are heard. These are rumored to be from the fires. Are these normal occurrences, or are they really connected to those who met their death on a day over 100 years ago? I don't know, but if there was ever a location in Chicago that should be haunted by the lives lost there, the Death Alley of the Iroquois Theater has the best claim in the city. Thank you so much for your submission, Rachel. That was a really interesting story, but obviously so heart-wrenching. It's just crazy to think about the complete lack of fire safety that they had going on there. I had actually never heard the story before, and it's so hard to picture that many people dying in a theater especially so many children and women. That's just horrifying. But I appreciate the submission. That was a really interesting story. Next up, we have a submission from a true crime writer slash podcast host, and he's kind of a big deal. All right, my name is Jesse Pollock. I am an author and a podcaster. Uh, I've written the books Death on the Devil's Teeth and The Acid King, both of which are true crime books with a satanic edge. And um, 
I guess I've always been drawn to writing those types of things because I grew up in uh, an area of New Jersey that is just prone to ghost stories. Plenty of stuff occult-related, um, to give you a good idea of it. I grew up in the town of Clark, and growing up there were constant rumors about uh, witchcraft and devil worshippers in uh, the woods surrounding the local golf course and uh, a nearby uh, patch of wilderness called the Wachung Reservation. And writing about these urban legends, some of which later became confirmed reality, led me to becoming a correspondent for Weird New Jersey magazine. And that's going to come into play a little later in this story. Now, we're going to go back to somewhere in the early 2000s. I want to say it was 2003. I was in a band at the time. I was uh, about 14, 15 years old. I was in high school. And my lead singer was my best friend, Kyle, who was 17 at the time. And uh, our drummer was our buddy, Eric, who was also 17. So these guys were a couple years older than me. And one of the advantages of hanging out with dudes that are a few years older than you when you're, uh, you know, a freshman in high school is, hey, they can drive. So we did a lot of driving. Uh, I used to just drive around all night listening to our favorite Beatles records, you know, smoking pot, hitting up a drive-thru, things like that. And uh, one night, we're in this area of Union County, and Kyle liked to get out and smoke pot in the woods. That was his thing. I would rather smoke it at home and not have to deal with cops. But on this night... He took us to a place in Union County called the Galloping Hill Golf Course. And it was called the Galloping Hill Golf Course because that whole area in Union County was just filled with Revolutionary War history. Uh, it's an incredibly rich area if you're uh, a Revolutionary War colonial times buff. A ton of museums, ton of property still standing from that area, uh, colonial era graveyards, stuff like that. So, you know, this patch of land was uh, named Galloping Hill as sort of a, I guess you'd say a reference to, you know, all of the soldiers on horseback from back then. So anyway, Kyle just parks his car on this little side street facing the golf course, and he said, oh, let's all get out. We'll go into the woods, you know. We'll go smoke pot in there. It'll be really cool. And it's the middle of the night. It's kind of cold out, and I, I don't know. I, di I just didn't like the idea of trespassing on a golf course to go smoke pot in the woods and you know, run into a cop. It just, even, even when I was that young, I was just like, uh, you know, not for me. So, uh, I told the two of them, I said, listen, you guys go do that. I'm going to stay in the car. I'm going to keep an eye on the car in case someone comes out and tells us to leave or, you know, cops show up or something. I can make up a story. Oh, okay. So the two of them go and they're gone for a while. They're gone for like a half hour. And so I'm just sitting in the back seat of this late nineties Ford Focus this cramped little car, and just staring out the window at these woods to my left. There's this big flat area, a portion of the golf course, and then bordering it is this thick, dense patch of woods that my two friends have just walked into. And I'm just sitting there like, really getting creeped out. You know, your imagination really starts getting the best of you in a situation like that. And you're in 
central New Jersey. It's very wooded. It was the fall, so we're talking, you know, moonlit night, fog, uh, high spookiness, right? The atmosphere was set. So I'm sitting there, and something just told me, hey, look out the window. And so I look back out the window to my left to see, like, hey, are the guys coming back? I don't know. Something just told me, look in that direction. So I look, and like I said, there's this flat piece of land there, tightly trimmed grass, part of the golf course. And there's like a little upslope, like a 45-degree incline, and it goes up like maybe 5 or 10 feet. And then at the top of that incline is the beginning of the woods that border this golf course. And I look, and all of a sudden I see this silhouetted figure just emerge from the woods slowly. Just comes out of the woods, goes down that 45-degree incline into the big, flat, wide-open area of the golf course. And I notice that I can make out shoulders, the form of an arm, and then below that, it just kind of tapers off. Like, yeah, you could not see legs. And then nothing up top either. There was no head. No neck stump either, like the classic headless horseman. Just shoulders and no head. And I watched this thing glide out of the woods and glide down the incline. And it's floating about a foot off of the ground. And it comes down the incline and into the open area of the golf course goes about 10, 15 feet forward, parallel to the car, which is parked probably 300 feet away from this, and eventually just dissipates, just gently fades out. Like, I'll never forget this. The motion on this thing, whatever this was, was just very gentle and smooth. And even though I was looking at the full-bodied apparition of a headless person, I didn't feel overtly threatened, but I was speechless at what I had just seen. And no sooner that I could process it or say something to myself or jump, react in any way, I see Kyle and Eric darting out of the woods from the same spot that I saw this thing emerge. And they are booking it. They're hauling ass. And they get back to the car, and before I can even say anything, the doors fly open, they jump in, and Eric is screaming at Kyle, going, Did you see that thing? It had no fucking head, Kyle. It had no head. And immediately, I'm just like, you saw it too? And they're like, how the hell did you see it? It was chasing us. And I'm like, I don't know how it was chasing you because it emerged from the woods before you. And Kyle said it must have cut across us. It must have gone off to the side and somehow got in front of us. But I said, yeah, I saw that thing. It had no head. We got the fuck out of there, man. And we never went back there. Ever again. And... For years and years and years, when I would tell this story, that's where the story ended. But there's a postscript. About 13 years later, I ordered a bunch of back issues for Weird New Jersey Magazine, the publication that I occasionally write for. And this order of back issues was pretty significant for me because for years I had been trying to get a hold of the coveted first three issues of Weird New Jersey. Now... Just a little backstory there. The magazine was started in 1994, and it was literally a newsletter given out to friends. You know, it was made on a typewriter and photocopied. The first several issues of this magazine were not mass-produced by any means. So it was nearly impossible to find the first three issues. They, They never ended up on eBay or anything like that. They were coveted. They were kept by serious collectors. So... 
around that time, 13 years later, about, you know, like 2016, 2017-ish, Weird New Jersey decided to do a limited run of the first three issues. They reprinted them. And so I ordered it right away because I wanted to see the beginning of the magazine. I was a fan of the magazine before I started writing for it. And I had never seen these issues before. And so I open up this special issue. And to my shock and horror, I see back in 1994, when I was only six years old, I could have never have read this. And I never did until this moment. Someone wrote into Weird New Jersey about the headless horseman of Galloping Hill Golf Course. Apparently, for years, people had been seeing this headless apparition. I had never known about it. But I swear on my life, on a stack of Bibles, I saw that thing one night in the fall of 2003. And I will never forget it. That was the first time I had ever seen a full-body apparition. Wasn't the last... But there's something about that very first time when you see something you can't explain. It's profound. Is this evidence of life after death? Is this proof of demonic activities? I don't know. All I know is I saw something come out of the woods that night. And my two friends saw it too. And then almost two decades later, I found a copy of a magazine that came out when I was six years old and I could have never read it. And someone had written in about seeing it too. So, I'm Jesse Pollock, and that is the tale of the Headless Horseman of Galloping Hill Golf Course. Uh, If you liked hearing this story, definitely check out We're New Jersey Magazine, where you can read more like it, including articles I've written for them. You can check out my two books, Death on the Devil's Teeth and The Acid King. And you can also check out the two podcasts that I co-host, Podcast 1289, and True Crime Movie Club, both of which are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podcast Addict, and anywhere else that you can get podcasts. Thank you so much for that fantastic submission. It definitely gave me vibes of my own high school years, to be honest. High spookiness is an apt description for many of our adventures. And with that, it brings us to our final story, one in which I will be reading for Sean Burns, podcast guy, co-host of the future podcast, Now You've Seen It, which I will also be on. You can find us on Facebook if you'd like to follow us. His story is short and simple, but very chilling. Many years ago, I lived in Portland, Maine. I worked for a security company responding to alarms from residences and businesses from our call center. I worked a 12-hour shift on Mondays from 1 p.m. to 1 a.m. My typical habit was to get lunch from the little sandwich counter at the back of Joe's smoke shop for dinner at 6. When I entered the store that day, I noticed a man of Middle Eastern descent at the counter buying cigarettes. Normally this wouldn't be something I'd take notice of, but Maine at the time was 99.3% white, so any person of color tended to stick out. I had my dinner, went back to work, and ended up working until 3 a.m. After driving home and going to bed, my wife woke me up around 9 a.m. and said, Something is happening. You need to come see this. Someone had flown a plane into one of the World Trade Center towers. Two days later, I was reading the newspaper and the article was about how five of the terrorists had spent the night before 9-11 in a Portland hotel. Accompanying the article was a picture 
From the security camera at Joe's smoke shop, buying cigarettes was none other than Mohammed Atta, often referred to as the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks. Walking right behind him in the picture was me going to get my dinner. My brush with 9-11 is nothing compared to thousands of others who were killed in the attacks, lost family members, or responded to the scenes in New York, Pennsylvania, and Washington. Still, when I think about that day and that picture, being a mere five feet from the person responsible for so many deaths and so much destruction less than 24 hours later, I still get chills. This story gave me chills as well. And I'm guessing many of you will have the same reaction. Thank you so much for that submission. It was intense. And thank you everyone for listening to this episode. I know it was very long, but I hope that you were entertained. And I hope that you all have a wonderful Halloween. Stay safe. Eat lots of candy, but not all of it because you'll want some tomorrow. And let's all prepare for the uh, holiday slog. (laughs) All right, guys. Good night.